Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So this is an episode that I haven't done in a while called Questions and Answers, and I'm really excited to be back with you doing an episode like this because the questions have been piling up in my inbox. Um, They come to me from just direct email I get them through Twitter, through direct message on my LinkedIn account, um, through Facebook Messenger, just so many different ways. Um, I get these questions when I meet people at events. Now these events are all virtual, mind you, but I still get them all the time. So one of the things that I often have to chat with people about that's just a little hard to talk about sometimes is that as an attorney, I have this ethical responsibility not to engage in um, an attorney-client relationship with somebody who is not actually a client. And I know it's kind of a tough thing for people to understand. So I try to be super gentle about it. I don't want to sound like I don't want to answer your questions because I really do. But I can't be out there in the world answering everybody's legal questions that are deeply personal to you. Um because I don't have enough time in a 10-minute conversation to gather all of the information that I need to do a really good job to make sure that I have thoroughly vetted your question and your specific case. And I, I want to make sure that I'm not giving you the wrong advice, as you can imagine. So What I try to do instead, and frankly, the reason that I started getting out there and giving information under all of these medium that I have, whether it be the podcast or the webinars that I do or just pushing blog posts out and doing everything under the special needs company's banner is to make sure that our community has the access to the information that they need. So as I gather all of these questions, concerns, issues, topics, I do podcasts on those specific topics and I do webinars and so forth, but I also will once in a while 
try to just gather up these questions and hit them, you know, in general form, uh, one at a time. So that's what I'm doing today. And I'm always excited when I get to do this because, um, because the questions are awesome and, um, very unique. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the questions that I get are, they do dig really deep and I can't get as deep as I would like to, obviously. Uh, sometimes the topics are so interesting. I could talk for hours about them, but time just doesn't allow that. So, um, I often analogize this to, you know, being a doctor and um, just thinking about like, hey, would you just kind of, you know, pick up the phone and call a doctor just randomly and ask them, start asking them questions about, you know, the uh, sore knee that you have. It's the same thing. It's not that the doctor doesn't want to help you, but there's a lot of information that needs to be gathered and tests that need to be run and just different things that you need to do as a professional to be able to answer that very specific question for that person. However, the doctor can give a lecture in general about sore knees. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm giving a general lecture about certain topics. So Exciting, right? <laughs> I bet you never knew there was so much to worry about here. Okay, so I have three basic topics that I want to talk about today. Um, I got multiple, multiple questions about Social Security and how Social Security payments are impacted by work. Those are questions that come up so much. Um, for a while, Social Security during the pandemic was not uh, sending out notices and was not bothering anybody, but now the notices are flying again, and people are getting um, they're getting noticed that um, they've hit their trial work period. They're getting noticed that they are they have uh, overpayments that are due back. They are getting noticed that they are getting um, kicked off. Uh, benefits, all kinds of things are happening. So we are getting lots and lots of questions about this. So I um, wanted to sort of bundle those questions up and talk to you a little bit about social security and work. Now, SSI and SSDI are two different programs, and we've covered this topic before. So I don't have time to go into huge detail about it, but they are impacted differently by work income. SSI is impacted dollar for dollar by um, income from work, but it's not impacted as, uh, as gravely as that. So there is a disregard, and that is because Social Security in general really encourages people to work. They want you to get back to work. And uh, they do that by allowing you this disregard. When you are on SSI, which is a means-tested program, a program as a last resort for people who are low income or no income and low asset, less than $2,000, they will um, allow you to 
disregard the first $20 of any income every month and the next $65 of income from work. So the first $85 every month is completely disregarded. After that $85, every dollar that you earn at work, you get to disregard the first 50 cents of that dollar. And when you're on SSI, then you only lose 50 cents of your SSI benefit for every dollar you earn after that first $85 of income that month. Now, if you have other income, meaning non-working income, that's a different story that is going to impact your benefit. So, um, and that is going to be a dollar for dollar reduction. So if you've got income coming in from multiple sources, it's going to get confusing very, very fast. But income from work can be fairly straightforward. Once you start earning income from work over about $1,200, you are probably going to be getting pretty close to losing your benefit. So it's time to start looking at that. Um, there are all kinds of deductions and things to look at when you are working and you're disabled. There are things like impairment-related work expenses, IRWE, we call it, I-R-W-E. So if you have things that you need that are disability-related that help you get to work or be at work, such as special medications, therapy, um, special transportation, not regular transportation, but special transportation, any kind of tools that you need to be at work, uh, tools for the blind or the hearing impaired or any kind of communication devices, anything like that, those costs are deductible from your income as long as you are paying them out of your pocket, of course. And once you deduct those costs, they will bring your income down so that you can retain your Social Security payment. So that's one thing to look at with your SSI. Um, you also can get what's known as a subsidy. If you are not performing 100% of the job that someone else would do in that job, and subsidies are complicated, so it would really behoove you to have a conversation with a Social Security expert on this topic. But if you are receiving any supports at work, if you are doing 75% of the job duties that somebody else is doing in that same job or would do in that same job. If you are needing to take a lot of time off that other people are, would not have been allowed to take. If you are receiving any kind of mentoring, if you, um, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, these are not merely accommodations. It goes above and beyond a, an accommodation. It's really, subsidy is really, um, you know, a, a sort of a, an animal of its own. And there is a form that the employer can fill out with Social Security or for Social Security, but also you can 
look at this and work at this without the form if the employer is not necessarily comfortable or familiar with working with Social Security on this, and, and a lot of smaller employers just aren't. You can use your evaluations at work. You can use supervisory letters. You can. We've done all kinds of things in this arena. Um, when you are on SSDI, SSDI is a different program. That is based on a um, it, the fact that you have already worked and paid in to your own through your own work history, paid into the insurance program, and you are now collecting disability payments based on your own work record. Or if you were disabled prior to age 22, you might be collecting on a parental work record. So it's possible that you are collecting child disability benefits or DAC, disabled adult child benefits, based on a parental work record and therefore on technically on an SSDI benefit. You may be working and you may hit what's known as the trial work period limit. That would be nine months at a certain payment amount, monthly payment amount, and that amount changes. It goes up every year. So you need to know what that number is every year. And those are published at Social Security. However, Social Security doesn't notify you and say, hey, you hit your first monthly trial work period. And once you hit nine, and they don't have to be nine sequential, by the way, they can be any nine months in a 60-month period. So that's five years. So let's say you hit one in 2017 in January, and then you hit another one in October in 2017, and then in January of 2018, you know, January through June, you hit six in a row. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden in 2020, you hit your next one. You've now hit nine. They're not sequential. And you haven't been forewarned. You didn't know. By the way, each one of those years had a different cap, had a different number. So it's unfortunate that you actually need to understand all of these limits. You need to understand what your earnings history is. It's an awful lot to be, um, it's an awful lot that you need to be understanding. It's an awful lot that you are required to understand and have down pat. And as the most vulnerable population, it's the hardest for us or for the disability population to be doing the most sophisticated calculations to figure these things out. Once you hit that trial work period, you're now in what's known as an extended period of eligibility. And that's a three-year period. And every time you hit a, the next number called substantial gainful activity, which is a higher number, higher, uh, a higher earnings number, you will not receive a payment. 
as soon as your three years is up, you are out, you're off the program. However, having a subsidy and having ERWI and being part of other programs called PASS can all help you avoid hitting those nine months of trial work period and can all avoid hitting your your substantial gainful activity so that you never end up in your extended period of eligibility or in getting kicked off the program. When you do hit your three years of your extended period of eligibility and you are off the program, you do, however, have another five years of expedited reinstatement available to you. So if for some reason your work experience does not work out for you, you can have a case that's still sitting with Social Security. And as long as you have the same disability, you can end up in an expedited reinstatement. So as I said, Social Security really tries to work with you to ensure that you are very successful at work and that once you are off benefits, you are going to stay off benefits and be successful at work. Hopefully, that answers the multitude of Social Security and work questions that I got Um, Social Security does have a number of really great periodicals and question and answers um, that are posted right on their website. I would go to ssa.gov. If you need a referral in your area, please let me know. I'd be happy to try to get you one. And I hope that um, this was helpful. If you do end up in a situation where you have had an overpayment and you would like to appeal, I highly recommend it. Very often there are things that you can do with Social Security to work through either paying down an overpayment over time, having an overpayment forgiven, and also potentially working through, um, you know, working through having an overpayment um, reduced. Social Security very much is really there to be helpful to you. And I have found that most of the caseworkers really do try. So uh, please uh, approach the process, even though it is a hugely confusing and paper-filled process, approach it with a positive attitude. And I do think that you for the most part, can have some success in being able to work through what you need. Um, If you do have an issue, however, with a trust or with something that is deeply complicated and um, where you have concerns about owing back, you know, more than a small sum of money, you may want to get some advice from an attorney who works in this field. Okay, the next question that I got or series of questions that I got had to do with the fact that many, many programs were closed during this past year. 
And people were writing to me about transitioning their young person, um, regardless of whatever age they were transitioning out of their high school or, um, um, or, you know, that transition age program. And they were transitioning them to either adult services or transitioning them to some other transition program. And the questions really centered around how do I find a program or how do I commit to a program that I can't visit and that my child can't visit because of COVID? And that was a tough one to answer, let me tell you. Um, That has been a huge problem, beyond huge problem, for so many millions of people in our communities all across the country, really all across the world. But trying to transition a young person with a disability this past year has been horrific. If you cannot have your child go visit a program and you can't visit a program and all you're doing is Zoom, you are not getting the full flavor of what is going on there. You are not getting a sense of the teaching methods and protocols. You're not getting a sense of who else is in the class. You're not getting a sense of how your child or adult child is going to do when things are going back from being in Zoom to being, um, you know, full-fledged, you know, in a group program. And one of the things that has actually been really wonderful, if there have been any wonderful things about COVID, many of us have learned a lot about our kids and about what our kids need. Not that we didn't know this before, but watching the Zoom classes and seeing how our kids are with their teachers and with their therapists and having a lot more hands-on has given many of us more confidence, has given us a really front seat to all of our kids' programming. And it has been a godsend for many of us that we have been able to see what our kids have been doing in in these programs. And we have been able to really pay attention to what their uh, teachers and aides and therapists and everybody has been doing with them. So although I don't have a magic bullet and I don't have some, you know, way to really open things up and get you into a program right now, what I can offer is that it's more important than ever to make your list and come in with strength and say, here are the things that we need. So my kid, my adult child needs these things in their program. 
either a transition program or an adult service program, whether it's a day program, residential service program, et cetera. And you're coming, like I said, from a position of strength because you've observed, you know, you've seen, you have now this equal or even more powerful than equal seat at the table. And I think this is just amazing and awesome because we are not going to now be um, hidden anymore from everything that's been going on behind closed doors. So there you go. Um, Again, no uh, magic bullet here, but this is something. It's it's what we've got available to us. So hopefully that helps as you move forward in this pandemic world and post-pandemic world. And look, if the program doesn't work out, it is really tough to change. I know one of the things that the pandemic has done is a lot of programs have closed and we don't have a lot of available to us. Um, there's just, there's just not as much, but things are evolving too. And because not only have parents learned a lot, but programs have learned too. So I'm hoping that we are going to take a look at the massive warehousing that we have done, and we're not going to see a huge room with 50 people in it anymore for an adult day health program. I'm hoping that we're going to take a look and really shake things up and do things a little differently, but we'll see. Okay, now to get things really interesting here, um, the last question that came in was so timely. And it was a question about supported decision-making. And supported decision-making is a, um, it's a newer movement. It's been around for a while, actually, but it's really taking hold. And it's very timely for me and for us here, because in Massachusetts, A supported decision-making statute has been reintroduced again this legislative session. It was introduced last February, I believe, in 2020, got sidetracked by the pandemic. And um, over the last couple of years, just two or three years, supported decision-making statutes have boomed all over the country. Um, If you look back just three or four years ago, we only had two or three And now we have um, dozens of them, actually. Um, And um, I can't remember exactly how many, but I want to say there's, you know, more than 15, I think. And they are um, too many to count uh, for how many have been proposed and are being worked on and are being, um, you know, basically considered and look, this is a movement and, you know, overall it's a, it's a good one, but it's not without its considerations. So, um, the question, as I said, is very timely. It's something to talk about for sure. 
So I want to introduce the topic here, and then I am going to get us a guest to have a conversation about this. Um, and maybe we'll even do a webinar about it. So supported decision-making really centers around two things. One, this avoidance of guardianship, which um, is a uh, a taking of somebody's rights to make their own decisions. And it is the idea that somebody with a disability is allowed to maintain what we call the dignity of risk. What does dignity of risk mean? That means that the disabled person is allowed to or maintain, not allowed, but maintains their right to select their own choice of persons to support them. They decide when they want to approach their supporters, what questions they want to ask, when they gather that advice, they weigh the advice and they decide whether they want to take the advice just like anybody else. And if they decide to take the advice, great. If they don't take the advice, that's fine too. And that's the dignity of risk. It means that they have the right to make a mistake just like anybody else. That's the important piece. So, what we what we do with this is we we contract around it to make other people in the community comfortable with it that's what we're doing really and um i'm that's the part that i don't feel great about honestly um because you know what i really want to see is us making the world different and um, we need to keep pushing for uh, less discrimination, no discrimination. And so um, I do want to talk about that and I want to think about that a little bit as well. Um, so the areas we're talking about are really around healthcare and financial matters and some, you know, bigger life choices. Um, and Areas where maybe somebody doesn't necessarily need a guardianship, doesn't necessarily need a guardian to be making those decisions, but really just needs to um, needs help um, and support in weighing those decisions and um, needs to kind of walk that path to becoming a better self-advocate, needs help expressing their preferences and exercising their decision and um, needs help interacting with people in their community. And <laughs> I think in general, um, you know, we know that this, th there are many areas that people with disabilities have been denied access to being able to make their own decisions. It is our hope that supported decision-making will be empowering and that by using a supported decision-making agreement that 
the individual will retain his or her legal rights and that it will help reduce stigma um, that the person with a disability will be able to um, take charge of their own lives and, and stay in the community and uh, a contributing member of the community. So who can a supporter be? Well, of course, it's going to depend on your state law, but there's been a lot of talk about, you know, whether somebody can, as a paid caregiver, can be a supporter or not be a supporter. And that's very important because there are many caregiving um, programs where people are paid caregivers. For example, here in Massachusetts, where you cannot be a legal guardian and be a paid caregiver. So if you can be a paid caregiver and, you know, be on a, an SDM team, then that is going to make a big difference for people who want to do SDM versus guardianship. Um, and so I can see that being a really fine line, you know, bone of contention when it comes to trying to decide which way to go. Um, you know, what happens if, the person with a disability disagrees with their SDM team. Technically, the person with a disability, you know, they get to make their own decision. Again, they weigh the ideas and the thoughts of their support team, and then they make the decision ultimately, meaning that even up to making the wrong decision, many of us have experienced this in our own lives. We have made an expensive wrong choice. We have, um, you know, taken that wrong job. We have moved to the wrong house. We have had bad experiences in friendships and love life, etc. So, um, you know, there are opportunities to try out SDM while under guardianship uh, to try to get a guardianship closed. There are different types of supported decision-making agreements out there to look at. And there are a lot of questions about how this will work out in the world and whether you should have a supported decision-making agreement and still have legal documents like a healthcare proxy and a power of attorney. And those are not um, necessarily in conflict with each other. You can still have those legal documents and a supported decision-making agreement. For example, a healthcare proxy does not go into effect until somebody is legally not able to make their own decisions. And so, um, you know, that's a springing power that a doctor will say, hey, you know, you're in the hospital, you've had an accident, you're in a coma. You would not be using your supported decision-making agreement at that time because you, as the, as the decision-maker under the SDM agreement, are still making your own decisions. So, again, these two documents would work together. Um I, I recognize that this is complicated, but there's a lot to consider here. Um, you know, you would definitely be an adult using this agreement. And I think it's important to get educated 
and to look at some of the pilot projects around the country, look at some of the different supported decision-making statutes around the country and note some of their differences. There is an SDM um, comparison chart and um, the Center for for um, the the Center for Public Representation here in Massachusetts and in, in DC has a lot of information on their website about supported decision-making, what it is, what it is not, and they are strong proponents for it. Anything new can be a little scary. Um, it is um, a little concerning as an attorney. I want to make sure that when anyone is signing an agreement that they understand their rights and that the agreements are being explained to them and that they are really understanding what they're getting into, how they get out of it. Um, and especially if there is an organization involved as sort of binding arbitrator of the agreement, um, I want to make sure that there is some support that is beyond an agency. But besides that, it's, you know, it, it's definitely a, an ideal whose time has come. We need to be talking about more independence. We need to be supporting people's self-determination. We have to be moving that ball forward down the field because for a long time, this this has been binary, you know? It's been, you can't make your own decisions, you can make your own decisions. And so many people live in the gray. There, we, we, we have not looked at people as a whole person, as somebody who has so many skills and so many um, possibilities. And also as someone who continues to grow and achieve past age 18, past age 22. Some of our folks are just on a little bit of a different trajectory or a learning curve. And we need to honor that and not say, hey, okay, you're, you know, 18 and we need to do guardianship because we need to protect you. But that's going to be forever now. We may need to do guardianship at 18, but we also need to think about how that can change by the time somebody's 23 or 25. Um, and maybe this is the way that we don't need to do guardianship. Maybe this is a way that we can support until somebody is ready to be on their own. I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I love the conversation. I'm glad we're having the conversation. I want to have the conversation because for so long we weren't having the conversation. I definitely want to make sure that parents and families continue to be part of this conversation. Too often, I feel that many government agencies as well as nonprofits are exclusive and um, see sometimes, not always, but sometimes see parents as too closely trying to hold on to their children and that we as parents don't see our children as whole people. We do. 
we are unfortunately very often seeing the harm that comes to our kids. And um, we are holding them tight because we, we do want to make sure that when they are out in the world, they are, they are going to be okay. So we want to work together as a community for the best of everybody. So supported decision-making is here to stay. Let's have a great conversation about it. Let's be respectful of everybody's role. Let's, you know, be respectful of the allyship that everybody is going to um, play in this uh, conversation. And uh, I'm excited. So thank you for the question. It's an awesome one. Very timely. I appreciate it. And um, let's hopefully do another podcast about this very soon. Thank you so much. So that's it for our podcast today. Hope you go out and enjoy this beautiful spring weather that we're having here in New England. And I look forward to our next podcast. Bless you all. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.